Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I in I Think You're Interesting. If you listen to podcasts, and you must since you're listening to this one, you know how thoroughly true crime podcasts dominate this little world. Serial was the podcast that first made everybody say, hey, podcasts, those are cool, right? And now from up and vanished to criminal to accused, there's a true crime podcast for every taste. I'll be honest, I like most of these shows. I'm a sucker for stories of unsolved crimes and journalists' intrepid efforts to solve them. But to me, one true crime podcast stands head and shoulders above the rest of them, to the degree that I hesitate to call it a true crime podcast, because that will give you a bunch of ideas about what it is rather than what it's not. It's called In the Dark, a production of APM Reports, and it reveals just how much the true crime podcast can be about something beyond solving those unsolved crimes. In the Dark tackles the inherent injustices of the American justice system. It examines all of the ways incompetent personnel can muck up cases in ways that destroy lives. In its first season, the show dug into the case of Jacob Wetterling, a young boy kidnapped in rural Minnesota where the local sheriff's department's general inability to follow proper protocols led to a case that could have been solved quickly remaining unsolved for almost 30 years. But for as much as I loved season one, season two has been even better. Producer, host, and lead reporter Madeline Barron and her team have examined the case against Curtis Flowers, a Mississippi man accused of a brutal spree killing who's been tried six times for that crime. He's been convicted, several of those convictions have been overturned, and he's remained in prison in all of that time. The In the Dark team utterly destroys the case against Curtis, but it also looks at how that case came to be at how the local prosecutor became so sure Curtis committed those crimes, and at how stacking juries with white jurors can hurt the chances of a black defendant like Curtis. In the Dark is a terrific piece of journalism that you should listen to, but only after you listen to my chat with Madeline. Stick around. Madeline, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. One of the things that we say about this is it's a true crime podcast, uh, but that is it has a very different connotation when it comes to In the Dark than it does with like most other true crime podcasts. And that's not to besmirch them. There are many very good ones, but but this one's my favorite. And I want you to talk a little bit about the approach that you folks came up with to taking on this genre and like talking much more about issues within the justice system as opposed to like trying to solve a crime. So Curtis Flowers is a man who grew up in this small town, Winona, Mississippi. And in 1996, this quadruple murder happened in Winona, Mississippi. Four people were shot to death in the head at a local furniture store where Curtis had worked a few weeks earlier for a few days. The next year, Curtis is arrested, and he has been locked up ever since. So Curtis Flowers is a man from the small town in Mississippi who's been tried six times for the same quadruple murder. And the whole time he said he's innocent, and he is currently on death row. He has some appeals that he's working on right now. Um, but but he has been gone from Winona since 1997. It's interesting because we get called a true crime podcast and you can kind of understand why. I mean, we're reporting on crime. There's a lot of podcasts about crime. But our background is we're just reporters. We're investigative journalists. And so we don't really see what we're doing as true crime. We see it as investigative reporting about the criminal justice system. And we're doing it in a podcast. We're looking at situations where powerful people or institutions are doing things that are harming other people. And we're looking for for those situations. So we're not, um, the kind of stories we're not doing as investigative reporters, at least for us, would be like the whodunit or that kind of thing. Like what we're looking at really is holding, you know, the institutions and the people who run institutions accountable for their actions. How did you choose this case? Because obviously it's it's unfolded in some fascinating ways, but there are probably a number of cases out there where 
you know, it would not be as, as fascinating. So how did you find this case and like this story? Yeah. So after season one of In the Dark, we asked our listeners for ideas of stories to pursue. And we got many, many, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, emails, DMs on Twitter, phone calls, everything you can imagine. And we also had some of our own ideas about what to pursue. And in this kind of, you can imagine like just so many emails and so many pitches. There was one that was one of the shortest ones we received. It was from a woman who lives in that area. And she just said to us, you know, there's a man here who's been tried six times for the same crime. This is his name. His name is Curtis Flowers. And I think he might be innocent. I mean, my first reaction was, mm, probably, probably he has not been tried six times for the same crime. You know, as a reporter, we get a lot of pitches, you know, that sound really interesting, but then like the facts turn out to not be there. And so we, we you know, found out, no, actually, this is true. He has been tried six times. And then we did a lot of initial reporting. I mean, for several months before we really decided to report this story. And what was interesting to us about this story, I mean, what really made us choose this story for season two of In the Dark is because of the the larger questions that this story raises. First of all, you have incredibly high stakes. There's a man on death row at the center of this case who could be executed. We also have a story about the power of prosecutors, the power of this prosecutor to try a man six times. And, you know, the larger questions, questions that raises about the power of prosecutors in this country the power of district attorneys, perhaps in particular, elected prosecutors, and then also questions about race and race and jury selection. So it was both a very important story on the individual case level, but it also, for us as investigative reporters, was a sort of story that we could see had larger implications. Season two is has a lot of stuff that deals with race, but I'm wondering how you approach that question of reporting on uh, the racial aspect of this, because uh, I, I read a, an interview you did with the New Yorker, where it, it sort of talks about how your uh, a lot of your staff is white, um, and a lot of the time when we have these like white newsrooms, it's hard for us to talk about race in ways that aren't clumsy or miss the mark. And I think that this show does really well with that. So tell me about approaching that question of reporting out a story that has so much so many racial implications uh, within that situation. Sure, I mean we approach it as we do with with all things as reporters. I mean it is factually clear in this case that race plays a key role in basically every single aspect of what is going on in this case. And so for us not to report on race in this case would basically be to not report the story. And so, I mean, it's so obvious that I don't even know if we should really get credit for noticing it. You know, it's 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 pervasive. In the case of Curtis Flowers, the prosecutor has a pattern of striking Black people off the juries to the point where the Mississippi Supreme Court called him out as, you know, among the more blatant examples of racial discrimination that they've seen in jury selection in the entire history of the state. I mean, I think for us, it's like we're looking at what are the facts here? What is causing Curtis Flowers to be tried six times for the same crime in a death penalty case where he says he's innocent? Um, you know, what is going on in this case? And, and the answer, part of the answer, large part, has to do with race. Mm -hmm. How did you, So how did you kind of like approach that question of like, okay, we have a lot of white people on our team and we're going to talk about this thing. Like, how do you report, report that out? Because I know that a lot of newsrooms are having that conversation and like, we're not always finding great answers. And it seems like you guys figured out a way to do it, you know? As reporters, we know we're always going into environments where we have only our own backgrounds, you know, so we bring certain things to a story that come from our own past, or our own backgrounds and other things we don't know anything about. They're not our experience. And so you kind of go, you go in with some humility thinking, I don't know, 
certain experiences. And that is certainly the case here. You know, I, as a white reporter, that is absolutely the case. You know, and I think, too, um, you know, an interesting dynamic in this in this reporting that hasn't really, I think, gotten as maybe as much attention is the dynamic of being a white reporter reporting in the this town and the reactions we receive from white people in the town, which is a whole other part of the story. So I think that, there, you know, there's a lot of things, of course, going on in this. But um, as reporters, you know, we we are always in this situation. We're very aware of it. Um, going into a story that we have certain things that are not our experience and that we need to learn about them. I mean, reporting is a process of learning about experiences that are not your experience sometimes. Sometimes they are. And spending the time necessary so that you can, in some way, translate those experiences in a way that is true and makes sense. And, and, and you know, like, like how people understand what's going on here? Because, you know, in the town of Winona, the racial divide is very real. The way that people view the case really depends largely on race. And you have some very strong present day and past realities of life in Winona, like in a lot of other places, but particular ones to Winona that really do impact what's going on in the case. You know, this is a place where Fannie Lou Hamer, the civil rights activist, was arrested at a bus station, taken to a jail and nearly beaten to death. And that's a story that a lot of people in town in Winona know about. It's not something that is commemorated anyway in the town, but there are certain memories and lived experiences in the town that really do play a role in how people view law enforcement today, how they view what is happening in the Curtis Flowers case. I, I kind of want to return to you said that that white people within the town had reactions to you. And I'm thinking about this in terms of there is this real, uh, in rural white communities, I grew up in one, like there is this real suspicion of the media in a lot of ways. And you've now done two seasons in white, in rural communities that have large white populations, let's say. Season one was much more heavily skewed in that direction. So, like, what is that reaction to, like, here comes the media to, like, overturn some of these rocks? Like, like what are those reactions like? You know, it's interesting because as a reporter, I have seen that somewhat, but I also think that not as much as you might think. I mean, I think that a lot of, you know, there's a lot of reporting on politics, but when you go and you report on something other than politics, you know, and you show up in a town and you're there for a really long period of time, and it's clear that what you're trying to do is actually find something out, that you're sort of doing your work as a reporter to build trust with people. And so you get to a point where you're not, you know, a generic reporter that stands for all reporters that they think have done something wrong, but you're like this reporter who's being careful, who's talking to people, who's talked to some of your friends and they felt like the reporter was fair, you know, is spending the time. You moved down to Winona for the better part of a year. Tell me a little bit about about making that decision and like getting people to trust you and like getting them to know, yes, we're going to be a part of the community for this this point in time and like building those relationships. Yeah, I mean, for us, it was we couldn't have done the story if we hadn't moved there. I mean, the story was too complicated. It required too much reporting. So it required a year plus of reporting, but a year, you know, solid of, of being there. So that was just kind of a, a basic level thing. It's like, if we're going to do this story, we're going to move there. In terms of building relationships, I think it's like anything else. You know, sometimes we're forced into situations where we just show up and we ask questions of perfect strangers and we hope that they respond. But when you have long, you know, longer periods of time like this, you can do things that, you know, allow people to get to know you first, trust you first. For example, in Winona, you know, we were invited to people's churches. We were invited to you know, like all kinds of different community events. We were invited into people's homes. I mean, people, many people were very, very um, welcoming to us. 
and got to know us. I mean, we got to know them. They got to know us over this course of, of such a long time of reporting. And I think that that has allowed us to better understand the town in ways that I don't think we would have been able to if we even had been there for, you know, only a few months. So, like, give me a sense of what it's like to, like, drive into Winona. Like, it's a small town, obviously, but there are lots of different kinds of small towns. So, like, what's it like to be in Winona? Sure. So it is right off the freeway. So it's right off of 55, which is like the north-south freeway, Mississippi. So if you're going like Memphis south, you're going to hit the Winona exit. You turn off the freeway, and as you drive in, you see this this um, very large white cross that is illuminated at night that's next to a Holiday Inn Express. And then you sort of wind your way in. And, you know, parts of Winona look like, you know, kind of sort of like strip mall, you know, with like an H&R block and a Sonic and Subway and all and like the stuff that's in like so many towns. And then there's also still though like an old kind of downtown area and you know some independent businesses and things like that. So it has both kind of like a more you know right off the freeway feel, but then as you get into it, you know it has you know older parts to it. What it doesn't have, you know if you picture like a, a like a small southern town, um because it's right close to the highway, it doesn't it does not it's not a remote location. And in the city of Winona itself, people are living really quite close together. So like the neighborhood where the flowers live, for example, the houses are, are like right up on each other. And then the outskirts of Winona are these kind of like winding, logging gravel roads with these like steep cutoffs on either side. Um, and there's a lot of like hunting clubs and things like that out there. And, you know, w- one of the features of Winona is that it has not preserved some of its history that you see in a lot of other smaller, similar small southern towns. So, for example, you know, a lot of southern towns, even really small ones, have like the, you know, beautifully ornate courthouse. Um, Winona did not keep its courthouse. It has like a newer courthouse. So it doesn't have like all of those sort of like a kind of iconic markers of a southern town. Like it, it doesn't have a, a square, for example, like a lot of a southern towns do. When you kind of like went into Winona and you were like talking about this this case, and to my mind, like, I obviously haven't heard the whole season, but you've really demolished a lot of the prosecution's case in this case. Was there pushback against that, against the idea that like this sort of foregone conclusion for many people in the town, like maybe wasn't as foregone as it seemed? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we don't publish the results of our reporting before we publish them, you know, to everyone. And so we weren't going around town saying, you know, this is these are our findings about the investigation. So really what we were encountering more was how people responded to us asking the questions. And so it really broke down on how people felt about the case. So, you know, if you thought that Curtis Flowers was guilty, um, a lot of people who felt that way, not everyone, I should point out, but a lot of people were like more reluctant or even resistant to talking. Whereas if you think Curtis is innocent or even if you just think, well, I don't think the case has been fully proved, or I think, you know, six trials is too much, then you're more, at least in Winona, we're more interested in, in the fact that, oh, here's a reporter here who's going to look into this. So um, we weren't going around, you know, saying our findings and have people react to them or things like that. I think that, um, you know, it, it is interesting to see now, you know, the reaction that the reporting has gotten now that it is out there. And now that, you know, people who we really like lived amongst basically for a year are seeing all of these pieces that they had really, you know, no idea exactly the full scope of what we were doing. You know, we might have interviewed one person for this and they know that, you know, they talked to all these other 10 people I know and, you know, they talked to these other people. But it's been really gratifying to see people respond to our findings who live in Winona, live in Duck Hill, Vaden, like all these towns that are around that area. 
Yeah. What what has that response been like? If you yeah, obviously you can't generalize, but like I've been looking at local Mississippi media like coverage of this podcast, and it's it's fascinating to see like how much interest there is in it. This is one of the worst crimes that's happened in Winona, Mississippi. Um, this is some a case that everyone knows about there. Um, it's a case that people have very strong feelings about, you know, on both sides, you know, with uh, particularly with certain revelations in our reporting involving, you know, Odell Hallman, one of the the uh, prison informants. You know, that 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 news mattered to a great number of people and people follow this this very closely. And also, you know, remember, too, it's I mean, it's a very small town. So there's about forty five hundred or so people in Winona, the last count. And so everybody is, not everybody, but most people are connected with this case in some way. I mean, you know, their second cousins to the investigator or their uncle, you know, is married to Curtis's cousin or whatever it is. You know, everybody seems to have some connection. One of the things that I think must have been challenging about this season is the two sort of central figures in the story, Curtis Flowers, who's the man who's been in prison, and Doug Evans, who's the prosecutor. You didn't seem to have a ton of access to them. No access in the case of Curtis. But how did you sort of work around like these two central figures in this story we kind of have to allude to and build through other people's uh, memories and recollections of them? You know, it was interesting. It was one of the first questions, of course, we had when we were trying to decide whether or not to do this story was, you know, who, you know, who are the people that we'd want to talk to? And obviously, you know, right at the top of the list is Curtis Flowers. And, you know, for us, of course, we wish we could interview him. You know, the, the Mississippi prison policy says that prison inmates can have access to reporters, and yet the prison is denying that request, both in person and on the phone, without providing a reason. And so that is very frustrating. I do hope that they will reconsider that. On the other hand, I think that our reporting isn't about, you know, how you feel about Curtis Flowers. You know, I mean, it's it's not a story about does he seem like the sort of person who did that. It's about the facts, you know. And so there are many, many things I would want to talk to Curtis Flowers about, but we would have never considered not doing the reporting because we couldn't have access to him. And in fact, that is almost in a way, when you think about it, all the more reason to do this story. I mean, here is somebody who is in a single solitary cell in Parchman Prison, who's essentially been largely cut off from the outside world, who's on death row for a crime he says he didn't commit. And so, um, you know, we can work around that. You know, one of the things that we did with um, with both Curtis and with Doug Evans as well, you know, is what we just always do as as reporters, which is to talk to every last person we can think of who surround that person's world. So, you know, whether that's, you know, everybody from, of course, family members to, you know, ex-girlfriends from high school or, you know, Curtis's case, you know, everybody we can imagine who would, would give us relevant information um, about people. And, yeah, I mean, I still hope that to be able to talk to him one day, of course. And, I, I, yeah, I, I still am hopeful that that maybe won't one day happen. One of the things that I do think that you do really well and like you need to do is you build a sense of this community, like especially some of the the middle episodes, like you're talking to just like people who live in this town and have day-to-day lives and maybe intersect with this case and in sort of interesting ways. And like every time you talk to a new person who's involved in the case, you get a real sense of them as a personality. Curtis Giovanni Flowers murdered those four people. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, it's hard to trust this investigation. It's hard to trust the people who ran it, and it's hard to trust the prosecution trying this case. Hey, where are the facts? Where's the proof? Mississippi, Mississippi. You know, we all know what goes on in Mississippi. Once we get you in the courtroom, you're ours. 
If you're black, we got you. Just be cautious when you go approaching some white people houses, come out Curtis. Just be careful. Get out of the store. Okay. Don't make don't don't cause a scene, but I but had all you other ones. How did you sort of decide when to include elements of like, this is what it's like to live in Winona, Mississippi, especially like you lived there for a long time, but you were ultimately, you know, just people who had just moved there. So like, how did you get a sense of the town through that and then decide which details to include? Yeah, that is a really good question. That's something that we went back and forth with a lot on the writing. On the one hand, you know, we did live there for, you know, better part of a year, um, not just myself, but a whole team. And on the other hand, is that relevant? You know, so we're looking for parts where in the story it's relevant to point it out. Like there's something that it tells us and we don't want to just make it like our journey in this town or something like that. So we're always like asking, you know, what helps serve the story better? You know, does it help to include this or not to include this? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the town, it was interesting because it did feel like by the end of this reporting that we had made the round so much that we sort of were in this stage, especially in the last couple of months where we were realizing, oh, this person I interviewed on like the second week is like second cousin's husband's, you know, babysitter to this other person, you know, and it just was like it was all sort of combining towards the end. Um, because if you spend if you spend a year in a town of, you know, a little more than 4000 people, that's probably just what happens. We're always thinking like like it's not really our story. You know, it's not story is not like the story of our team going to Mississippi. It's the story of Curtis Flowers, a man on death row. And so we're using those details as necessary to tell that story. You know, just looking at the case of of, of Curtis Flowers, it, it seemed like it seemed flimsy to me. When I found out you were doing this, I read like the Wikipedia entry. So that's the extent of my reporting. But like it seemed flimsy to me. But like if you had gone down there and it was like rock solid, did you see this as like a story that could go several different ways depending on what the reporting found out? That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, the, so the first thing we did was we spent a couple months just trying to to like look at Curtis basically in the worst possible light. And look at all of the, you know, the evidence against him and try to come to like a really hard decision about, is there something in this? I mean, it doesn't look like there's any real solid direct evidence against him, for example. But is there something like in all of these files, these thousands and thousands of pages that before we embark on a story, we need to know about? Because honestly, like if there was, you know, if this was a DNA case and there was a ton of evidence and there was a video surveillance camera footage of of Curtis doing this crime and he'd been tried six times, well, it's kind of a legal curiosity. You know, well, how did that happen? But it's not the same level of importance as a story. And so that was really one of the first things that we did. And once we had concluded that we had a full understanding of all the facts in the case and we understood what they added up to, that's when we actually said, okay, like we're going to do the story. Yeah. What's What was the process of sort of like finding a way to do this I guess monetarily, because like obviously season one was a big hit. It wins a Peabody. It, it does really great. But like if you're based there in Minnesota, like that case, you can drive there and back, you know, like this right. is a thing where you really have to commit. Yeah. No, we are very fortunate to work on a, a national investigative reporting team called APM Reports as part of American Public Media. And so this is all we do. So the company is fully in support of this. This is what the company wants us to be doing. And so, you know, we, we picked season one. It's it almost basically happened to be in Minnesota. But our thinking always for season two is that season two, you know, unless we had the most incredible idea we couldn't turn away from, was not going to be in Minnesota because we are a national investigative reporting team. I mean, it's a logistical challenge. You know, you're I lived there, too, but but so did the whole rest of the team. And you're really asking a lot of people to relocate like that. 
you know, we were, we hired um, two a, another producer and reporter going into this season who are both amazing as well. And so we're able to really increase the reporting capacity and producing capacity, which was necessary for this story. I mean, this story was on a much larger, much required much more reporting than season one. Season one was really about the failures of a sheriff's department to solve a crime that seemed solvable. And season two is really about like what happens when prosecutors get very attached to like a, a particular theory of what happened in a crime. What have you sort of, what have you sort of learned about human bias, about our inability to let go of ideas when we're wrong, like, and how that affects law enforcement from working on this show? I think this is not unique to law enforcement, of course. I mean, this is a problem that we all have. And I think that the, the stories that we're looking at, what's going on in those stories in some cases, is that there's a failure to recognize that. So the problem isn't that we, you know, we all have some problems with this, right? Like we all try to make sense of the world around us in ways that are sometimes wrong. But I think it's like acknowledge, like what do you do when you realize that? And what are the, like the measures that you put into place to prevent that from happening? There's also, you know, there's that, but there's also, you know, in, this, in the season one of In the Dark, there's some really basic parts of that investigation that were done in a way that was not in keeping with standards for investigations, you know, not canvassing the neighborhood right away. I mean, things like that, where it's it's not really necessarily all like a question of bias. Sometimes it is just a question of, you know, did you do things the way that, you know, most people do? Or do you do things the way that like they train you in to do? And if you do some of those things, you know, there's a reason why those things are in place. Because um, if you do those, those can kind of help you out to avoid some of these mistakes. I mean, with, with the police investigations, I always think of it like, um, you know, hand washing in hospitals. It's a very simple thing, this checklist of how to wash your hands. You know, some people resisted when it became a, a, like an idea to put this in hospitals to cut down on infection rates. Very successful, it appears. And, you know, with, with police, um, there are some police that have little checklists of things to do. But there's resistance to that as well in some places, you know, like it's more art than science or something like that. So I think people are, are sometimes reluctant to acknowledge that there might be like a, a correct way of doing things or like a way that maybe we can study and apply to other places. The other reality of it is that because law enforcement is so decentralized, you have some places that are following all of these certain practices and they have very high rates of solving crime. And then you have other places that have very low rates of solving crime and they are not following those practices. And there's not really like a lot of learning sometimes or as much learning as could maybe take place between these different agencies. Like there's a really interesting, I don't know if you saw it, the Wesley Lowry at the Washington Post just has a big story out in the last couple of days about clearance rates across the United States. Yeah. And so it's like looking at those same, that same question in a much bigger way. I mean, that, that reporting is amazing. It's definitely worth checking out. And, you know, I think a lot of this comes down to fund fundamentals. As investigative reporters, you know, what we often find, it's not that like often that really highly complex things get messed up. A lot of the times when there's a, a big problem or a big abuse of power, it's relatively simple what the original problem was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do want to ask, like, how has this made you working on the show made you think about your job differently? Made you think about like reporting on issues within the justice system differently? One of the things I really like about being a reporter is that you're always learning new things. You're always in these situations where you're diving into something that you come into as a bit of a novice. Of course, some stuff you don't because you have experience as a reporter. I mean, to me, I think that there's interesting questions that I've been thinking a lot about 
about the sort of structure of law enforcement in the United States. It's an area that I'm interested in, you know, why we have we have such a decentralized system, how that compares to other countries, what are the pros and cons of that. I think that that's sort of a theme that you see in a, in a lot of our work on our team, these questions about, you know, local control versus the federal government. You know, we're having this conversation, we're having this conversation about like, bias and and rethinking your assumptions and checklists and like trying to do everything right. And like reporters are among the people I know who really try to examine their own biases, their own thoughts. Like what are some things that you've had to re-examine that maybe you thought to be true before from working on the show or over your career of being a reporter might even be a better way of asking that. One example that comes to mind is there was a story I was reporting on a couple of years ago where we hadn't published anything yet. And we were still kind of in the early months of reporting. And everyone was telling us that it was a story about a, a sexual abuse cover-up, that there was this one person who was responsible. And all of our sources were saying, like, that's the guy. Like, it's this, this person. He's the, the main decision maker. And this is a, the benefit of having a team where you're discussing and you're like, well, okay, although everybody is telling us that this person is the top decision maker, what if they aren't? So you're sort of always asking yourself these these opposite questions, like, well, what if that's not even true? Or what if it's a different way? And in that case, you know, this is just in the process of reporting, we hadn't published anything that led to like a big revelation that actually that person was very responsible, but not ultimately the decision maker, which led to a whole other like several months, almost a year of reporting. So I think like when you're having these kind of editorial discussions where reporters are sitting in a room with their editors, like what we're always trying to do, at least in our team, and I think in many, many newsrooms, you're you're trying to think of like what is the way in which all of this, everything I found out, number one, is maybe not a problem? Like, is there a way in which all this sort of makes sense and an argument could be made that nothing wrong has happened here? And you really challenge yourself on that. Like, you, you almost think, like, I'm going to take a side in a debate where I'm forced to debate this side, that nothing wrong has happened here, or it's all, like, you know, kind of small-level errors. And then you have editors who are doing that, too, who can sometimes do a better job of it because they're outside of the story, they have a different perspective. Um, so you're doing those sorts of things as best you can. And then, you know, for our work, you know, I always feel better when I feel like we've kind of done, you know, like two months more reporting than like we maybe need, you know, like which may sound bad. But like, you know, I, I like a feeling of, of spending a very long time where it's not that we don't need it. I shouldn't put it that way. But it's that you're spending a long time where you're starting to realize that like you're just getting more confirmation of things but it's not something that's happening for a week where you're just sort of finding stuff that agrees with what you're saying it's like at the end of a long project so you've reported something for a year and a half you start to get into this time period where you know you've got like five more people in a certain category to talk to and they all are are kind of like like do you really need to talk to all of them you've talked to the other 95 but you kind of do but you kind of know you're towards the end now you know so so you can kind of tell too i mean but I think this is the advantage of, of spending more time on a story, like having this, this uh, ability to spend this much time, is that we can re fully report out things to the point where we are able to draw strong, make strong statements that are rooted in facts, and we don't speculate because yeah. we don't need to speculate. Yeah. You've, you've like really done some great reporting on the justice system in the country, but you've also talked about how decentralized it is. So when we look at our own individual communities, what can we hopefully learn from what happened in Stearns County and what happened in Winona and like look at our own communities and say, is that happening here? I think it's a matter of paying attention. So it's so easy to not pay attention, right? Like we've probably all have done this 
to, you know, who is your city council person? Who's your mayor? Who's your sheriff? Who's your senator? Who's your representative? Who's the president? You know, there is a lot of things to track politically in the United States. But I, I do think that sometimes the local officials get overlooked. And so part of it is a matter of people in communities holding their elected officials accountable. So one of the things that we were so happy to see coming out of season one was how many people contacted us from all across the country and even some other countries as well, saying, like, after listening to this podcast, I went and, like, went to my sheriff's office or I went online or I went to some archive and I tried to figure out what the clearance rates were for my county. And then sometimes they would even, like, people would send them to us and our data reporter will craft would help people sort of make sense of what the clearance rate data meant, you know, what are the limitations of it? Because that's ultimately what we want to do. Like, we, like if we can sort of point out something that we, that is wrong and give people the tools to continue to investigate that or pay attention to it, really, and ask questions of elected officials and the people that are in power, that's really what we want to be doing. So it's like, we don't control like the, the impact of our reporting. We don't know what happens when a story goes out there. But the thing that we most hope for is that people engage with it and people take it seriously and have some thought about, well, what can I do? What should I do in response to this story? And I, I think, you know, so often those questions are not asked at the local level. And so sometimes I think there's just a basic power in like showing up to a meeting and just asking these questions, you know you might be the first person who's shown up at, you know, a certain meeting and asked for a certain set of data. And it's not that the people, you know, locally might be doing anything wrong. It's just that you might not know what's going on in your town. Right, right. I think that the show, in addition to being very thoughtful and and fact-filled and and well-reported, is engaging and entertaining as well. And I want to know what your conversations are like about, like, how to make the show uh, gripping, how to make the show interesting, how to like get people to keep listening, like how do you how you structure it to do that? So like, what are those conversations like? They start right away, mm-hmm. like from the very first moment, and they go throughout the entire reporting and through all of writing and production. So we're always thinking about that. We go through a really long storyboarding process. So once we're you know towards the tail end of our reporting, and we do some kind of preliminary storyboarding as well. But you know. We don't really know what we're going to find, so there's a limit to how much of that we can really do at the beginning. Moving things around. I mean, one of the challenges with doing a podcast like this is what goes in what episode. So that, I think, is one of the largest challenges, you know, and you can kind of move something to a different episode, but then you realize you kind of created a problem by doing that, so you move it back. So there's a lot of of changes. And another thing that we do is we have group edits. So we have edits where we bring in people who, you know, work for American public media but aren't on our team who can give us um, feedback, like, as, as a first listen, don't know what the story is about. And that's incredibly helpful. So we can see, you know, is this part boring or is this part, like, not making the point that we want it to make? Or, you know, is, is there something that people want to know more about? Um, because when you are in a story for this long, you it's easy to lose perspective on that, almost like the more basic stuff. Uh, you mentioned that you move stuff around. I'm wondering, like, what was a big change you had to make in the process of, like, structuring either season? Oh, wow. I mean, there's so many. I mean, it's hard to even pinpoint one. If I showed you the original draft of episode one for either season, there's some things that are the same, but they go through so many changes. I mean, it's like our whole process is very iterative, so we're never like, oh, no, we can't move this out, and that's going to be a big deal that we're going to remember. It's like, move it out. Next day, we sleep on it. We think, well, you know, that should actually be back in there. And so it's really, I mean, for us, it's like we like to have as many 
edits as possible, as many opportunities to kind of go through something and rethink it. Um, you know, of course, season one was unique because we had a breaking news development right as the podcast was being released and the crime was solved, fortunately. And it was solved right when the podcast was coming out. So we had some unique challenges there with structure. Not as much as you might think, but um, I think we're always learning as we go. I mean, this area in particular, um, I think, is a, like a challenge. It's also, you know, really interesting and creative. Um, but we're definitely, we learned a lot from season one. So finally, like, what have you learned about the podcast form, the long form narrative podcast form as a vehicle for journalism? Like, what does it do really well in terms of telling journalistic stories? And where are some areas that maybe it struggles compared to like a, a long newspaper investigation? I think that what we've seen, both with podcasts and also just with documentary film, is that people want in-depth reporting. And so I think the greatest advantage of podcasts is that you can deliver in-depth reporting to people who want it. Like our listeners want the details, like they want the science, they want to go deep into these stories. And so that format allows us to do it. I also think, you know, just in general, in audio, you know, you can lose yourself in a story. You know, you're, the story is being told to you and you can hear the people who are in the story talking directly to you. You know, similar to documentary film. But I think there's, sort of, there's you know, it always gets talked about in radio. There's intimacy to radio. It's not a shared experience, you know, by and large. You know, you're listening on your headphones. You're listening in your car by yourself. Um, the other thing, though, I think a limit still, though, is is that, you know, some people listen to podcasts. Some people don't. A lot of people don't. And, like, for example, with, um, with In the Dark, one thing that was really important to us is to partner with the Clarion Ledger in Mississippi, so Mississippi's largest paper, to have stories about our findings appear in the newspaper because, you know, we want to try to figure out ways to reach people who are not listening to podcasts, who are not going to listen to a podcast. It's just not how they want or are going to consume news. So I think that's something also to keep in mind, like how can we create different ways to, to distribute the story? Well, the show is in the dark. It's available anywhere. Fine podcasts are sold. Madeline, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So this is the place where I do a little joke typically, but that feels very bad after a sober, serious episode about the American justice system. So I'm just going to say that I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of I Think You're Interesting. My producer, as always, is Bridget Armstrong. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our studio is thanks to Rebel Talk Network here in Los Angeles. Madeline was in Minnesota at the APM Studios. Our recording engineer is Ernie Hurtado. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. It uh, helps us get the word out about the show and helps us keep attracting great guests. You can email me, Todd at Vox.com, if you have something you want to say to me, or you can email the whole show ityi.podcast at vox.com we all get that and sometimes we can help you out and sometimes we can't but we we like to read your thoughts and you can also tweet at me at tvoti that is tvoti on twitter we're going to be back next week with more folks from the world of arts and entertainment media and culture just you know people i think are interesting but until then if you want to get a podcast all you have to do is find an unsolved crime and solve it and then like figure out how that ties into larger issues of what it means to be an American in the year 2018, which I'm sure you can do like 
you, you've got it. You've got this going for you. Go for it.